he was positive no one cared about him. And he'd happened to have Carrie's cell phone number and was contemplating suicide. And so he called his attorney, who he said was the only person that I felt like cared about me. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Hey, hey, everybody. Today, I am pleased to have Asina Beck here with me, Executive Director of the Children's Law Center in Covington, Kentucky. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, so first, let's uh, just give me a little background about uh, yourself and what got you into what you're doing. Um, so I have been at the Children's Law Center for about five years, three of those as Executive Director. Um so uh, before the Children's Law Center, I was uh, in private practice, but really most of my career was spent at legal aid. That's why I went to law school, was to do public interest work. Um, I didn't know any lawyers. My family didn't have any lawyers. So it was kind of surprising when I decided I was going to be a lawyer. Um, but I'd always worked with the Children's Law Center um, as a private attorney and always respected the work that they did. So when an opportunity came up for me to join them, I jumped on it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, tell us about the Children's Law Center. See, the Children's Law Center, um, you mentioned we're in Covington. That is our main office in Covington, Kentucky. But we also have another office in Lexington, Kentucky. Mm. Um, so we do work in Kentucky and Ohio. Um we do through throughout both states. Um, we also do some regional work around juvenile justice issues, and then we're involved um, with some national groups doing some national projects as well. So I always say, for you know, a, a small shop, we do um, you know quite a bit of work and have quite a bit of reach. Um, so we've been around. This is 31 years this year. Wow. Um, the we the the founder was the executive director until 2017 when I took over, um, and she, her name is Kim Tandy. She is um, not only a mentor to me and many other lawyers, but um, really a celebrity in the juvenile justice world. Um, and she created the Children's Law Center right out of law school. Before that, she was a social worker working at um, the runaway shelter. And so she really saw the need that um, the, was the legal advocacy that was missing for a lot of um, the people that she worked with. So that's why she decided to go to law school and create the Children's Law Center and right out of the gate um, with some Lawyers that were mentors to her, she filed a lawsuit in Kentucky because at the time, juveniles were still housed in jail with adults. And really? so, yes. And wow. so she filed um, a lawsuit and created, as a result of that, the regional juvenile detention centers that Kentucky now has. So she made her mark very yeah. early and made a huge mark and yeah. so had a lot of credibility. So really a lot of the work that's come after that has really um, built on that and the credibility that she um, had from early on. Yeah. So juvenile justice, child protection, education, yes. law. So are are the majority of the people that you work with is it is it caretakers of the child and the child itself all the above all of the above so one of the things that can be a little confusing about the work that we do is our clients are the kids and okay. the juveniles all that right. is our client that is who our client attorney client relationship is with um obviously we have to have you know parental involvement and parental input um to a certain extent sometimes we have clients that come to us um who may not have a caretaker or someone um to be involved and so we will represent them um anyway but we certainly coordinate with parents, caretakers, mentors, teachers, whoever is involved in the youth's life, but the youth is our client. Okay. And a lot of times, unfortunately, the caretaker or the parent could be someone that is causing the distress yeah. and 
Unfortunately, break, yes. Breaking the law. And so a, a, a 10 year old, 11 year old kid could just contact you and say, I, I need help. And then you'll help kind of facilitate the team around them. Cause I mean, we're talking about a, you know, the most vulnerable group of people that, that are out there. Presumably, yes, okay. but typically a 10 or 11-year-old isn't going to know about us right, right, or right. or know how to get in touch with us. So usually it's someone, um, you know, a teacher, um, a, a mentor, just another adult that knows that this child may need help that will reach out on, on their behalf. Um, we have older teenagers and young adults that that do contact us on their own on a regular basis. But a lot of times it is some adult or some other service provider that has worked with us or aware of us that will connect um, the youth with us. So are, is this so let's go through kind of the range of cases that you see or or types of cases. Is it kids that are causing trouble? That, that are in the legal system or kids that need help because of uh, negligence or abuse or things like that? Both, okay. actually. And a lot of times we have clients that fit both of those descriptions. Not only are um, they maybe causing trouble or in trouble, but then they're, they're also a victim of um, abuse or neglect or some sort of trauma, um, which wouldn't surprise you that what that is often why they found themselves in the position that they're in trouble as well. Um, so sometimes it could be both. Um, one of the things that's a little bit different about our organization that people ask, um, well, there's the public defenders or there's other systems in place where kids do get lawyers. And so we don't try to, we are a gap filler. So we're, we're not going to get involved in cases in which there's already a system in place for the child to have a lawyer. Now, with that being said, we um, don't ignore those systems. We still do a lot of work to try to improve those systems. Um, but we kind of fill in the gaps for, you know, if you if a, if a child has a public defender, then the public defender can represent them in, you know, the juvenile delinquency case. But let's say they have an education issue going on at the same time. Maybe they've done something at school. So not only do they have charges against them, but they're looking at suspension or expulsion well, typically, the public defender can't get involved in the education issue just because of their own um, rules and obviously capacity. So we often work hand in hand with those other systems to fill in where there still needs to be advocacy, but there's not um, already something in place to have that done. Right. Yeah. Uh, I was looking at your, your the website and all the programming. Like you said, I mean, it's this is not just a little mom and pop. I mean, you've, you guys have got some serious reach. Uh, and one thing I did want to uh, talk about that people might not re truly realize is that children really don't have rights, right? But, when it comes down to it. Um, they, they have limited rights. And often what rights they do have have been gained through the legal system by organizations like the Children's Law Center and other legal organizations that, you know, have litigated and um, taken case, cases up through the courts in order to ensure that children have rights. But not um, it's it's definitely not the same as an adult. Right. And I guess we just assume that kids are protected. But when it comes down to it. I mean, like you said, there are limitations to that. Uh, <laughs> one thing that interests me uh, that I wanted to talk about was uh, social isolation. So we talked so the Stop Solitary for Ohio Youth is a uh, special program that you uh, are involved with. Um, so let's let's just kind of blow that out a little bit. Um, it seems like is there a lot of this going on? In, in the system? Um, Absolutely. And, and people are often shocked and horrified to learn that. Oh. Um, we know that it happens for adults and um, solitary confinement, you know, it is supposed to be meant to for, for kids not to be used as a punishment, but to be used as a protective, um, you know, a protective space. I guess you could say if a child is a you know danger to themselves or to others, but in actuality, what we see 
is that it is used as a punishment. And so you're talking about um, a child, 13, 14 years old, could be confined to a room that's eight by eight, 22 hours a day where they get out to only shower or to maybe get rec time. Um, and that that can go on. And if you, you know, look at stories that children have shared about being in solitary confinement, you know, you, you hear them say, it, I, I, I was in, you know, the detention facility for three years and spent half of that time in solitary confinement. Um, and you know, especially uh, with boys, boys get a lot of that. Um, you know, there's, you know, if you have a detention center where, let's say, there's some rival gangs or, right. you know, there's some trouble that breaks out and, and they get into fights and they're going to be, you know, put in their rooms and solitary. And, and what happens is obviously that is not um, – that is not a healthy thing for your for your mind or your mental health to be able to withstand, especially for such young people whose brains are still forming. And there's been studies that actually show it. It actually changes the shape of their brain, and it can stunt development and growth. And it usually works against what the purpose is to give them a space to take a time out and calm down. And they will, th- those that have been subjected to this will tell you how angry it makes them. And so oftentimes then they're in there, they act out once they're in there, and then they get additional time. And so they see this as this, you know, never-ending cycle. Um, and we had a campaign specifically geared toward um, Ohio because um, we see that Ohio does uh, use that with juveniles um, more than they should. Um, I'll say that Ohio, the Ohio juvenile justice system, um, there was a period of time where there was a lot of reform that happened within the system. That was a result of litigation filed by the Children's Law Center. Um, but as with any kind of reform, you know, reform doesn't just happen and then everybody goes on about their way with the new way of life. And so you have to monitor that and ensure that, you know, the the new leadership and new staff that come in behind those that were there also subscribe to that same form of um, reformed mindset, um, which isn't always the case. Um, so we had a campaign directed at Ohio. Um, it was a, an awareness campaign. And we are actually this summer working on um, kind of Stop Solitary 2.0 to revive that campaign. Um, We had a petition that was on change.org, and we actually sent that to uh, then-Governor Kasich asking him to ban solitary confinement for juveniles by executive order, which he has the power to do. Um, And that really didn't get much traction. And so we're hopeful that um, we kind of maybe have a second chance to educate Governor DeWine about the harmful practice and, and ask him to do the same. Um, so th- we have a, a petition with lots of, you know, um, educational materials about it. Um, one of the really cool things that we have is a few years ago, um, with the help from some great donors and um, Turner Construction, who actually built this, is we have, we call it the box. We have a replica of a solitary confinement cell Um it's currently at the Children's Law Center. We have it there on display, but we've taken it to um, different conferences where there are judges and elected officials and um, either even other people within the legal community just to raise, raise awareness because many think this uh, this doesn't happen anymore to, to, to juveniles, and, and it does. Right. Yeah. And it's out of sight, out of mind. So, Absolutely. So putting – something tangible in front of them and letting them look inside it and uh, to see what what really happens because we're not talking about a timeout here exactly you know I mean I, I, you know a timeout is 20 minutes correct 22 hours a day for days you know, months. months years I mean it's ridiculous and and I you know I watch all the documentaries and things on, on what this can do to an adult mind and people that are in jail I mean children this is like you said brains are still forming the most formidable years of their lives 
And I got to believe that it causes more long lasting harm than it does good as far as becoming a repeat offender or coming back, you know, in violence and anger and, and things like that. So, I mean, it should not take a rocket scientist to, to determine that this is not good. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the key, the replacement for that is um, better training of the staff that are inside of these facilities because it is, we recognize that there's a safety issue. They need to be safe. They need to keep, you know, all of the juveniles that are there safe. But um, there's other states that do it. There's other ways to to use different um, techniques. And really, it comes down to a training issue and also changing your heart and mind and believing that this is harmful to children and I'm not going to do it. Right. And, and, you know, the key is re- rehabilitation. Absolutely. That is the key because um, like the adult criminal justice system, um, the juvenile justice system is built on the premise of rehabilitation. And um, you you hear the stories of you know juveniles who have been in detention and been in solitary and that that's not rehabilitative. And um, suicide rates are often very high mm-hmm. among mm-hmm. among them. Um, because not only are they subjected to this, but then there is no follow-up mental health treatment or process for them to be able to process what it was that they've endured. Exactly. I mean, it's like they're being thrown away. And, and you know, some of these at-risk uh, youth who don't have a very solid family dynamic probably think they're being thrown away. Absolutely. And they're thrown into a cell with nothing to do. There's no materials, no education, no tangible stuff to be working on with blocks or whatever. Right. To keep their mind active instead of making them go crazy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And we want them to, you know, we what we do to them is say, okay, you've spent all this time by yourself for 22 hours a day. Now you're out. So get out and go be a productive adult and go figure out how to do that on your own. Yeah. And it, it just doesn't work. Right. With, with You've got, you know, just massive resentments and anger issues and all that stuff. And then you just get released. It's, it's, it's a pretty good replica of what happens in the adult system. Absolutely. You know, which right. Which is so sad. And, and I know with training, I mean, in, in, and that's something I want to talk about too. In the training, do you uh, offer training to... Um, officers inside the facilities because I know like fatigue for these officers where they see the same kid in and out they start to lose empathy and they get angry and why aren't you getting better or you know you little twerp or you know you know and, that is and, and that's a real thing mm-hmm. um we do not so the children's law center doesn't that's not really our expertise okay. but there's yeah. there's plenty of groups and organizations and and models that that exist out there. Yeah. So for you, education and training, what kind of programming do you have and what does that look like? We do a lot of education and training of other legal professionals, okay. um, judges, elected officials about juvenile justice issues. Um, we also believe that it's part of our mission to train up other people that are in law school to to do this work, or and even if they're not going to do this work, to at least recognize the the issues and the adversities that children face in the legal system. Um, so we have a partnership with NKU Chase College of Law where they have the Children's Law Center Clinic. So each semester we have eight students that's led by um, the clinic director as well as an adjunct professor. They have class in our building They um, and they work on our cases. Um, and so they get real courtroom clinical experience. So that's a big part of what we do. Um, and then we also do training with youth. Um, you know, one of the things we work with kids that are involved in the juvenile justice system, but also one of the things we want to do is to help prevent them from becoming involved in the system. Um, so we have um, a game that's called Juvenile Justice Jeopardy. Um, we have a Kentucky and an Ohio version. It was created by 
um, another nonprofit called Strategies for Youth um, who developed this game. And they're also an organization that does a lot of training for law enforcement and corrections. And it teaches um, kids how what what their rights are, what they can and can't get in trouble for, um, and then also how to have an appropriate interaction with a police officer. Because so many times what we see is kids are afraid of police, especially um, black and brown kids. They're afraid of the police. And so often the interaction goes very bad very quickly. Um, so we've done that a lot um, across Ohio and across Kentucky, um, and the kids really like it. Um, law enforcement likes it. Um, they 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 find the training to be very credible. Um, and so we do a lot of training with youth as well, Schools. too. Schools, yes. Yeah. So we have um, a street version, and then we have a school version. Um, and so we play it with in schools and, you know, boys and girls clubs or just any kind of groups that um, kids may gather. Um, sometimes if kids are on diversion, they have to do some sort of educational component. And so those um, youth workers or probation officers will will reach out to us to ask. We've actually played it um, in the detention centers in, in Ohio and in Kentucky. Um, so we, we try to train youth as well. Well, um, one of the most recent things we've we've just done is with our fabulous group of law clerks this summer, we created a series of Know Your Rights around protesting. And um, to, in order, you know, if you're going to protest, then make sure you know what what your rights are and that you we don't want you to, to end up arrested. So um, just depending on what what's going on in the world, we'll we'll try to create some. Um, education pieces that resonate with teenagers um, and think it's something that they'll actually pay attention to to, to educate them. Right. So w- when these judges and and officers and w- when they when you have the opportunity to get in front of them and, and get their attention for an hour, do you see the light go on of how important this is and and their buy in? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Not all, of course, but yes, we we do. And it's really interesting um, when you have the opportunity, like, for instance, the Juvenile Justice Jeopardy game, to play that with youth and officers or judges. Last summer, um, we had the opportunity. We worked with a, a group of youth in Cincinnati who hosted a youth summit. Um, and so we had officers that, that were there. And so the officers and the youth played this game together and we got a lot of feedback from the officers just to see things from their, the, the kids' perspectives. Um, and it, it definitely has moments where you see the, the lights go off and, and it clicks. Right. Such a needed thing. Are are you seeing when you work with law clerks and go to chase are are there people is there a need for more people in your field absolutely yes there is there is a need for for more people um in our field um and there's also a push and a need that this should be really a specialized area of law and so we look at it or try to perpetuate the perspective that um it's it's specialized it's you know it's something that you should want to do. Um, it's not. Uh, oftentimes, there are you know, maybe public defender agencies or other agencies where they take brand new lawyers and and put them in juvenile court to to figure out how to practice law. And we say, no, 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 that's not where um, you should. You know, turn people loose to have them experiment or to to learn the ropes. It's, it's very specialized. Kids have unique needs. Laws are different when it comes to them. And you're talking about really giving a young person an experience that could shape the rest of their childhood and adulthood for good or for bad. And so um, we want this to be a a very specialized area. It's not like a guinea pig thing. Correct. Just because they're kids. Yeah. We should take extra care of them. Sure. Right. Right. So let's talk about the opioid impact grant. Yes. That's something that's 
fairly new? It is fairly new. We just kicked it off. Um, we've been working on the, the grant writing and the implementation since um, last summer. So uh, we have a um, funded pr- program that represents child victims, um, child vic- victims of you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, and our it's funded through um, the Victims of Crime Act, which is a federal act, but the money flows from the feds to the states, and then the states grant it out. So we um, have had that grant for a few years now um, through the Kentucky Justice Cabinet. And so the Justice Cabinet being familiar with the work, we're the only child-only victims project in Kentucky, reached out to us and said, um, we really admire the work that you do. Um, nor- the Northern Kentucky counties have been hit so hard from the you know opioid um, epidemic, and there's some federal funds that we'd like to apply for, and we'd like for you to be partners with us on this. And so we were very excited about it. Um, we also, a partner is the um, the schools, the family resource and youth centers, which are located in the schools, um, they're partners. So we we represent children in um, Boone, Kenton, and Campbell County. Um, we were able, with the funds, to hire a new attorney dedicated to doing just this project, and then also a social worker dedicated to the project, which the Children's Law Center has not had before. Um, which is a very important piece of the the project. So um, the premise is the kids are involved in the court system for some reason um, as a result of what started off as opioids. Now the the feds have expanded that to to be um, substances because what we've seen and all over, I'm sure, but Northern Kentucky meth is yes. on the on the rise, and so um, it's. They have a caregiver, a parent or a caregiver, and that has um, a substance abuse issue with, you know, some opioid meth is what the two we've seen a lot, and they're involved in the family court system for some way. So while the caregiver or the parents may also have, you know, criminal issues going on, they're involved in the family court system essentially because the children are at risk of being removed from the family. And in those contexts, um, there's some instances in which the law says the child has to be appointed an attorney, um, but there's others where it's not. So we represent kids who maybe it's just a, a custody case between parents that one parent has um, the substance abuse issue, or maybe it's a case that the state has brought in an effort to remove the children from the home. And then the other third category, which is where the family resource centers come in, is uh, kids or families that are at risk of being involved in the family court system. Because what we see is often families, when they get into the system, it's very hard to un- untangle and get out. So there's a, there's a legal process or proceeding going on, um, and we represent the children, but not only do we represent the children, but we work with the caregivers um, that are, are having the issues. Um, and we do that in an effort because our goal is we want the family unit to be intact because that is what's best for children. I mean, that... There's, you know, research all over that that sure. says that. And um, so we work with not just, you know, the the child. It could be the parents, even, you know, other people involved in the child's life that, that want to see the family stay intact. Um, and we help them to um, get all the resources they need to do what they need to do. Um, what the court has told them that they need to do in order to move forward and and keep their family intact. So it's not punitive in nature, and we're not the ones saying, here are the things we that you need to do. We're saying, here's what you've been told by the court or by the social service agency that you need to do. So now let's help you get the resources to do that. Um so it's it's still new. Um, we're still you know implementing it, um, but the we've had a 
lot of support from the family court judges about the project um, and just from the community in general. And we have, um, you know, cases that our attorney and our social worker are working on. Um, and it's interesting when you uh, first describe the the project to the parents or the, or the caregivers, um, they're kind of taken aback by the, the thought of what you're going to help me too, you know, uh, and th- this is great. And I was told to do all these things, but it's so overwhelming. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to go. Um, so our social worker helps them, helps them to be able to do that. So it's kind of like, so they'll go in, they'll get their charges. And then this is kind of a rehabilitation program, kind of like a drug court type thing that they're able to work through this program to get not only work through their issues, but also get custody back or work to get joint custody or whatever it is. Yeah, in a way, in that the the court has already said, these are the things you have to do. And we're, we're there, again, as the gap filler to Got say, it. now let's let us help you do the things that you need to do. Um, we have a uh, stakeholder, multidisciplinary stakeholder group made up of um, people from the school systems, the health department, um, you know, different agencies that um, serve families that come together once a month and we kind of triage the cases. And uh, what the attorney and the social worker have found is it makes all the difference to have everyone at the same table saying, here's this particular family. What can we offer? What can you offer? Um, and even during, you know, uh, the last few um, months working from home, you know, you, you are concerned that some of those initiatives kind of, you know, fall off, but everyone's still been really engaged doing it via Zoom and and remotely. So, um, and with the courts having been closed down for, you know, a, a little bit, um, we, it was a little bit slower, but things are are coming along quite quickly now. And are you seeing good results thus far with that particular project? Um, I, we haven't been at it long enough to okay. see any cases conclude, Got but it. we're seeing, I would say, a good interim result is that um, families are engaged and want to take advantage of the the program and the project. So I, I think that's success. Yeah. And I think what you said earlier about the fact that the adult would say, wow, I get to be a part of this right. instead of just locking me up and throw away the key and then I get out and have to navigate social services and all that stuff. I think why not just include everybody and try and, you know, have it all at the same time. And, and like you said, bringing in a triage effect and, and having all these eyes on the cases at one time to make sure nothing gets lost in the shuffle. It's very comprehensive, which is Fabulous. So it's a three-year, we've called it a pilot project. Um, we also have an evaluator um, that is working on the project too, um, who's helped us develop an assessment tool, who's really diving into, we track lots of data, who's really driving in to all of the data that we have so that we can continue to improve um, the project as we go. Um, but three-year um, pilot project, and hopefully we get additional um, service, but we really want this to become a model. So at the end of the three years, um, we want other jurisdictions, you know, within Kentucky, with within other states to, to look at this and say, wow, that's how you do it. That's how you keep families intact um, that are in the legal system and there's substance abuse issues going on. This is, this is how you do it. This is how we're going to do it for our kids and our families in our courts too. All right. And it's, it's such a honor for the, you know, the feds to come and, and hand select your firm to, uh, to do that. So that's, that's says so much about you guys and what you do. So that's, that's beautiful. Um, so let's, let's talk about, um, COVID. I mean, how has it impacted what you do? So initially, um, when I say swamped, it was more of uh, we weren't the the first few weeks not getting a lot of 
calls, which was actually concerning to yeah. us. Mm -hmm. um, but we did a lot of policy advocacy um, around trying to get juveniles out of detention centers so that they would be safe, trying to get juveniles um, out of you know, residential placement, so in areas where it's known to spread. Um, obviously, not getting them out and getting them onto the street, but those that, that do have a family member or someone that they could go to safely. So we did a lot of work in Kentucky and Ohio with directed, you know, um, really lobbying to the legislatures and to um, the governors to, to, to do something about protecting juveniles. Um, then also schools closed down, and that was a complete time of chaos for for parents, um, for our clients. And you know whether we're representing a child on an education issue, there the majority of them are all in school. So it right. was like we did have a, a a huge blowout because now all of our clients had an education issue, especially those receiving special education services. How to navigate that? What do you what do you do about that? So we tried to do a lot of um, guidance to parents and caregivers about here's you know here's what your rights are, here's what you know is happening, here's what to expect, here's what you should track. Um, and then also just reaching out to all of our clients to to make sure that they were receiving some sort of education um, from their school, whether that being you know an education packet or or whatever it was, making sure that they had had contact with their school and and had received something. Um, and then as time went on, um, what we did see go up are calls um, for domestic violence. Um, and we, the courts, often have us get involved when there's a child involved, especially when the child is the subject of the petition. Um, so it was like after people had been at home for a bit, um, then we started seeing those those calls and those cases go up. And those cases were always continuing in the courts because they were deemed em their emergencies. Right. Um, and then also we, you know, wonder about all of those that uh, didn't have someone to reach out for them or file a petition for them. Um, so then, uh, you know, we, we got into a new normal and a new system with, you know, new sort of just immediate focus on what we needed to do for our clients. Um, and now everything's about to change again because right. with everything with schools reopening, we're getting a lot of calls about that from parents um, asking, you know, what what do we expect and all of the options and what to choose. And it's it's so overwhelming. And it's, so. Still, it's still fluid. Uh, we, we still don't even know. I mean, school systems are sending out letters about uh, what's going to happen and it could all change. So it's got it's got to be very, very difficult to to field all those calls. But. Uh, one thing you said right in the beginning of, of this of this uh, portion was the fact that the calls weren't coming in, and I think some people think, "Well, that's good." Well, really, it's not good. It's not. It worried us. It concerned us. Yeah, because there's people are home with the abuser mm -hmm. and can't get access to a phone or or whatever. And and especially for um, for us and our younger clients, some of the older ones have cell phones or computers or a way that we could communicate. But it's kind of hard to call your eight year old client on mom's cell phone. Right. Um, and the pri privacy issues, confidentiality issues. I mean, maybe you're talking to someone on the computer, but you have no idea who's standing in the room just off. Right. Um, so we started in in June. We. we we as a staff said, we're going to reach out and make contact with all of our clients. Um, and we were fairly successful in, in being able to do that. And then um, starting in June, we did start meeting with those that we, we needed to meet with in person at our offices um, with, you know, all of the COVID protocols in place. But there was just some of our clients we had we had to put our eyes on. It, it wasn't going to work to try to be able to do some virtual session with them. Um, so I've, I feel like our attorneys um, throughout June and into July, that sense of anxiety or, or dread has, has calmed just a bit because we're able to have more contact with, with our clients. Right. It is very, 
uncharted territory for everybody, but when it comes to this type of these situations and with at-risk youth, um, so I imagine that was that was difficult. But glad to know that it's it's starting to you know processes are in place and it's becoming a little bit more, like you said, it's a new normal for everybody. It is, and I think uh, who knows when we'll ever know what the long-term effects of children are going to be um, as a result of this. Oh, yeah. I see it in my own child. I see it in my Absolutely. clients. Yeah. yeah. And and I talk about it all the time, but I mean, there's going to be a mental health, an overarching mental health crisis that comes out of this. Absolutely. I mean, because, you know, it's not, I mean, we were talking about social isolation before, you know, obviously some extremes with solitary confinement, but we've all been socially isolated mm -hmm. for months and it, you know it's things are starting to loosen up it sounds like things might tighten back down it is very difficult especially for kids and there's been talk about you know what are some positive things that may might come out of this and you know and and our circles we've said well maybe it's we see um how our education system is funded isn't isn't the maybe we need to look at Relook at our education system around, especially around issues of education equity. You saw some school districts, no problem. Everybody gets a laptop, go do your work. And we saw some school districts that, you know, just simply lost contact with with the students that they had. And I think um, hopefully mental health is going to be another one of those that we see really what a lack of um, mental health services that we have as a society and especially for children. Right. You know, you talk about what, what are some of the good things, because I think we all tr are trying during this time to figure out what can we take away from this, you know, and we've talked about, you know, I think a lot of us will realize how special this family time was, mm -hmm. but then in some of your cases, that's the worst place that people can be right? in a family where there's abuse and trauma and devastation where it's like being in a prison all day. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you think about, you know, this conversation is just to spread awareness on the fact that, you know, that th there is, it, it is not sunshine and rainbows for everybody. Absolutely. No, uh, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and what you're doing is, is such great work. Um, but, you know, trauma and exposure to adverse experiences can affect your life as as a child, but um, I think it, I think it's overlooked uh, on the on how much things happen in childhood that manifest themselves in adulthood. So it, it's just such a it's a, such a crucial thing. Um, and I think teaching kids to be advocates for themselves, you know, even though they shouldn't have to go through some of the stuff they're going through, to teach them uh, resiliency and um, even though they've had a rough go of it, that this does not define who they are. Mm -hmm. This is not their fault. And this, you don't have to be a statistic. You matter. I mean, it's such, such important things. And when you're in it so long, a kid could probably think after a while that I'm just no good or I, I don't. Many do. Yeah. And I don't amount to, I'm never going to amount to anything. I'm going to wind up like, you know, my parents or or whatever so just instilling hope in these kids is such a crucial thing we just had a an article about one of our clients and one of our attorneys um that came out and this this kid's story was he was in the detention center was having issues with education there um also we have a youth reentry um project that that we do and so he had become involved in that and with his attorney, Carrie Gilbert, and there was a period of time she had lost touch with him, and he said he was homeless, living under a bridge, and literally he was positive no one cared about him. And he happened to have Carrie's cell phone number and was contemplating suicide. And so he called his attorney, who he said was the only person that I felt like cared about me. 
called his attorney at three in the morning and he says, I was shocked that she picked up. And so she talked to him on the phone, you know, had a long conversation. And he he tells the story of how she was telling him how proud she was of him. And, you know, this is just a little blip. You're, it, we'll get back on the right track. And that's what we're here to do. And he said no one had ever talked to him that way. And he never in a million years expected it would be an attorney, you know, right. his attorney that was going to talk to him that way. Um and so he did. He 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 hung up the phone and then he went to our office and, and made contact with her the next day and got back on the right track. That's not to say that happens for 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 all of our clients, um, but it they do feel like no one cares. Right. And just that you know, just that one conversation, not only did it save his life, but when you've never been told that you're loved or that you know, someone's proud of you or that you can amount to something. I mean, that's just, just flat out awful. Mm -hmm. But I mean, thank God for, you know, again, uh, the work that everybody in your organization is doing because uh, just a phone call can turn somebody's life all the way around. And then having them be able to make other phone calls or log in if they have the ability to log into programming. And, you know, even though it's, that's just one instance, you know, it, that means that it can happen. It know? can. And so stories, storytelling is my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> so I saw the uh, youth and adult court storytelling project. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure you shed a tear too if you, if, oh, if you were able to read through any of those stories. So we um, had a project that was funded for a short time. We don't have any designated funding for that project. But one of the issues we work on is keeping youth out of adult court. So the situations vary state to state on when a juvenile can be moved from juvenile court into adult court and tried um, in their criminal case as an adult um, and then housed in adult, um, could be housed in adult jail. Um and essentially when that happens, what the court and what society is saying is this child has no chance of rehabilitation. So uh, we started a, a project where we reached out to all of the um, youth in Ohio that had been what Ohio calls bound over. You're bound over to adult court and said, we want to share your experiences and um, we want to bring awareness to this so that other people are aware that this happens. And so we would, you know, s say, if you want to be a part of this, let me know. And we got letters after letters, and they signed release of what their experience was, um, how it impacted their life. And no one said it positively <laughs> impacted their life. Um, and so we were able to share those um, stories. And just last fall, um, we did Ohio binds over a lot of youth, Cuyahoga County especially. So we were able to work with um, the ACLU Ohio and um, a couple of other organizations and the Justice Collaborative, which is a, a national project to do a report on Cuyahoga County, um, the rate of their bindovers and the fact that almost nearly all of them were African-American boys really? that were bound over. There's huge um, racial and ethnic disparities within the juvenile justice system, but especially within those that are sent to adult court. And um, right before we we did this project, um, I'd had one of the moms of one of the youth who had been bound over reach out to me, um, and her son had been bound over. He had served his time and and was out, um, and he also happened to do time in solitary confinement while he was there, and. The stress and the pressure and the trauma of that experience um, was just too much for him. And um, like many, you know, she she tried to get him um, mental health um, help, and he 
and he took his own life. Um, and she reached out to um, the Children's Law Center to say, I don't know what to do, but what can I do to stop this? Or what can I do to advocate for, for other kids that are going through this? And at the time we talked and I said, I, I, let me think on that. I'm, I'm not really sure. Of course you go through, write your legislators, you know, write, maybe you could write a letter to editors. But then we did this Bindover report and The Appeal, which is an online publication that um, is an excellent um, uh, newspaper that writes about um, a lot of criminal justice issues. They decided that they were going to write um, a story about our report we did on Cuyahoga County and just about Bindover in general. And so they said, does anyone have any um, clients that this has happened to that we could talk to? And I said, how about you reach out to my client's mom? She really wants to be able to to do something to help. And so she was a part of that um, project. And I was able to dig through because we kept every letter we kept the original. I was able to find his letters that he had shared with us and and mail them to her. She'd never seen them. Um, so she really felt good about being able to, what to some may seem a small way, but sharing, you know, her son's story and raising awareness of the whole notion of kids being in adult court. Yeah, and and hopes that she can stop that from happening in the future um the, everything is 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 great that that you're doing so we'll put uh the children's law center all their uh website and social media and all that stuff on the uh episode notes and um but just continue the march uh thank you for for being here and for everything you do yeah and thank you for highlighting children oh couldn't be more important especially with with mental health and social issues and 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 all this stuff. So this is great. You know, not to be cliche, but they really are our future if we want, you know. Yeah. If if we want kids to become successful adults, then we need to provide them with the tools to do that. Yeah. Uh, I thank you uh, for spending some time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. this was great. Yeah. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.